Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Good morning, everybody. This is Jeremy Evans, your host of Believe in Sports Law via the Believe Podcast Network. Really happy to be with you uh, this morning. Hope that you're doing well. Always appreciate uh, you listening in and taking the time to uh, participate in the show. Before we get into this week's uh, content, we're going to take a few moments to recognize our show sponsor, and then when we get into this week's topic, which is going to be the structure of consumable sports content. So looking at uh, this idea of what it takes to make sports content television consumable and what that looks like uh, for the future. So a quick brief moment from one of our sponsors, and then uh, we will get into the content for the show. The NFL season is in full swing. You might not be at the game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there's always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. All right, folks. Uh, thanks for uh, listening in again. And uh, that was a word from one of our show sponsors. And uh, always appreciate, obviously, having the sponsors for the show. And um, so let's get into the content. So this week we're going to be talking about the structure of consumable sports television. Now that may seem like a misnomer, right? Because sports television usually something that is pretty popular regardless, obviously depending on the sport and the match and everything else. But there is something definitely afoot, I think, when you're looking at uh, how leagues are structured and uh, the deal-making that's occurring between players' associations or unions and the league offices. And we're going to kind of survey some of that and sort of see where things are have been, uh, where they are now, and where they're uh, going to be going. So it, it, it used to be that, you know, I think sports has got a history of very, um, you know, gregarious or funny owners. Uh, you know, the Bill Vex of the world, right? Uh, definitely uh, look him up. He's sort of a character that over the years would do certain things uh, with the Oakland A's and would try to sort of, you know, I remember one year um, sort of seeing stuff, uh, at least, well, in in sort of my mind, it was sort of looking at stuff uh, from years past, but it was a situation where you had like uh, the Raleigh fingers of the world, you know, you had uh, all the players wearing, you know, um, mustaches, you know, long mustaches, or you had, you know, there was times where you had uh, sending, um, you know, like uh, just, just, I'm trying to think of examples, but there was one situation where you had um, people sort of going like batting at the plate uh, that were of smaller stature, right? And they would do things like this um, to where the person was an adult, uh, but, um, you know, they were just small, right? And so it was this idea of, Let's let's make a gimmick out of this and let's get people in the stands. Obviously, something that would not happen today, uh, but something that did occur in the past. And so things like that that occur, 
where owners are trying to get um, you know fans in the stands or get people to watch. Obviously, from a television standpoint, the growth of television has only gone up uh, in the sort of broader sense, uh, really since um, it became you know an option in the sense of when production became better, when distribution became better, uh, you have a lot more people watching sports from home in, in addition to sort of attending games in person, notwithstanding a sort of pandemic and, um, you know, uh, current changes happening in that space. But I think there's a history of this, right? And sports have changed as well. I mean, although baseball is pretty much still the same game uh, that they played in the late 1800s, um, it has changed. Rules have changed. Technology's changed. The same can be said of soccer. You know, the game that was played in the mid-1800s in England is pretty similar to what it is today. But again, the equipment's changed. Technology is better. Uh, arguably, uh, there's been studies done on this. You know, the athletes are performing better. You know, so with that all being said, it obviously creates a platform for change, right? There's a platform that needs to occur uh, that sort of opens up opportunities uh, for an increase in growth. So I sort of see that there's this wave across all major professional sports currently in America and abroad. And the movement is really to make sports more digestible. And what I mean by that is that making it easier to watch both in terms of access through distribution. So whether that's you're streaming something or you're watching on a linear, linear television, but it's also as to content, right? It's as to what are you watching? And of course, Famously, you have a lot of leagues now doing, you know, interesting things with camera angles or what have you to uh, or doing things with um, encouraging sports betting uh, as it's, those things are available in certain states. So there's a lot of things that are happening. It, matter of fact, it, there was a few weeks back, it may have been a month or so ago, where I'd written a column and talking about the changes going through baseball. And I said that Major League Baseball uh, in, implemented a ton of changes uh, that were sort of specific to the pandemic, but they were also uh, looking at um, like the future and things that have been sort of requested in the past. And some of those things included, you know, adding a designated hitter for both leagues, uh, adding this rule of the three batter minimum of, for relief pitchers, uh, starting with a runner on second base to start extra innings during the regular season. Um, increased suspensions for physical contact to avoid, um, you know, spreading of the coronavirus, right? So these were all things that occurred and that they implemented uh, and sort of we'll see how those things go forward down the road. But in some sense, the leagues were allowed to do a lot of testing with different things that they have been wanting to do for a while. Um, and of course, the pandemic for both sides provided an opportunity to try it out as you had shortened seasons and um, you know, trying to prevent certain things. So uh, I think that we've seen some of those changes play out and we'll see how they look going forward. But of course, sports like any business, right? You need to adapt to survive and and maybe even more importantly, grow, right? I think from a, a capitalism standpoint, you obviously want to grow your business, not just stay stagnant or stay the same, especially when you're talking about having investors and, you know, things like that. So, uh, as I mentioned, with the ongoing pandemic, uh, there's been changes to league structure. There's been uh, the sports betting that has obviously uh, exploded here in the United States. 
something that's already uh, a, a larger occurrence overseas in Europe and more commonplace. But here in the United States, it's uh, it's definitely taken a change there with that Supreme Court case from 2018 that essentially um, outlawed the um, the PASPA Act and uh, made it legal for states to pursue their own structures where that specific act essentially, you know, barred it from happening. And the court found that it was unconstitutional. But um, I think ultimately uh, those sorts of changes, those things that are happening are allowing for these leagues to do different things, try different things to make content more consumable to, to meet the consumer where they're at. Right. Um, And of course, where you have a ton of content already out there, whether it be entertainment, media, or sports, uh, you know, people have more access to content now than ever. Whether you're talking about Spotify and listening to music or podcast or Apple and same thing, music or podcast, or even Apple Plus with, you know, TV and, um, you know, television shows and all the streamers that are out there, not to mention you can still get satellite, you can still get cable, you know, all those things, right? There's a lot of content. So there's a lot of choice, which is good for the consumer, but it makes it more difficult for the business, which in turn the hope is, is that they work harder to get your business. So um, the other thing here is that, uh, you know, revenues are also down. There's been a ton of articles talk, talking about revenues being down in, uh, in sports across the board, right? And so, again, it highlights the need for businesses to adapt. And it's all about meeting the consumer where they're at now and where they want to be in the future. So now, obviously, as we mentioned, a lot of the, the professional sports leagues uh, here in America and abroad had shortened seasons. And they either went straight to the playoffs or the postseason, or uh, they had short sort of um, end of season, you know, uh, regular season, and then went straight to the playoffs. And there was a mixed bag in terms of bubble versus non-bubble when you're talking about the NBA or uh, Major League Baseball, um, uh, NHL, and then obviously NFL. And, you know, there's been a lot of sort of as a side note, there's been a lot of talk about why did the NBA have a bubble versus other sports? You know, it may not seem as um, intuitive as one might think, but uh, the idea here is, is that when you're talking about an NBA team, you have essentially 15 guys on each side. So 30 players. Well, in football, you've got 55 man rosters. And in baseball, you have 27-man rosters on each side. And with hockey, um, I believe it's 20, 21 players. So the point being is, is that it was impossible to do a bubble with that many teams during a regular season. Now, obviously, hockey went straight to a um, postseason from, from what I recall. Uh, but you know, ultimately, uh, the number of players on rosters and coaches and personnel was just, it was not going to happen in a bubble. But that being said, um, getting back to the, to the main gist here, it's this idea that, you know, the NBA has now talked about doing a 72 game season, um, in hopes of starting and ending before the summer, um, Olympics in Tokyo for 2021. So these are, and but again, this is something that sort of foreshadows and looks and highlights really players calling for that for a, for a, some time now. Uh, they've wanted a shorter season. Um, Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association have an expiring uh, collective bargaining agreement uh, coming up in 2021. So there's going to be discussions with regard to whether they should reduce the regular season from 162 to some lower figure, and 
even over in the English Premier League or EPL, they've considered moving from 20 clubs to 18. Uh, so sort of uh, contracting uh, the league size. There's been calls for a shorter season or less matches, which has gone on for many years. And of course, the point being is that with shortened seasons or less games, the idea is it makes it more consumable, right? More people are willing to watch. It's not as uh, a big thing to do to watch that many games. It makes it more popular for the wider population, not just the dedicated fan. Now, the key point here is, is that if you shorten the season or you take away games, owners and the players need to make up that revenue. So television networks as well, streamers, advertisers, they all have to make up that revenue somehow, right? Or grow. Because the idea as a business is to grow. So delays or gaps in the season are going to be replaced with in-season tournaments, more popular matches, uh, and increased international exposure. And this has clearly been the, the game plan and strategy of the leagues around the world. You know, you have uh, EPL and La Liga and Serie, Serie A matches occurring in the United States and vice versa with football games. You have baseball games being played in uh, English uh, soccer stadiums. There's just a lot of stuff going on, a lot of international exposure in India and China. Um, and obviously that brings problems, but uh, particularly in China with regard to um, the communist government there and, and some of the issues that occur with free speech and everything else. So um, that's sort of where I kind of see some of these some of these leagues going. Uh, I guess it's going to be interesting to see how all of this plays out in the near future. But um, it, it's it, it's sort of it again. This may seem intuitive, but it does take a little bit of digging to figure this out. In that, you know, over the past probably ten to fifteen years, there's been a lot of um, American professional sports franchise owners who have invested in overseas soccer clubs, right? So, talking about EPL. One of the things that was talked about in a Sportico article that I read recently was this idea of, well, we could have less games, but then maybe we could have more tournaments, right? And maybe it's you're going to see more EPL teams play, you know, League One teams in France. You're going to see uh, La Liga teams in, in Spain play more teams in the EPL. Uh, Serie A teams versus, you know, EPL teams, right? These more popular matches that bring in more people, international exposure, this sort of stuff, right? And then maybe they play that match in a neutral site in the United States, right? So it's like the trifecta. But it's interesting that a lot of these things have come as American professional sports franchise owners have purchased overseas um, soccer clubs, and they've done this either through personal financing or SPACs, which is um, a special purpose acquisition company, SPAC. And the American influence, a sports influence, is also crossing the pond, right? The, prefer the proverbial pond, right? It's like this idea that um, as the more investors of American descent invest, obviously they're going to bring some of their values over there, right? And this is an interesting dichotomy because um, despite sort of United States free market ideals and capitalism, its sports structures are very much based on protectionism, carve-outs, and antitrust exemptions. And there's been a ton of legal uh, cases over this with regard to determining that, uh, particularly in the name of baseball. There's you know, clearly an antitrust exemption, uh, which means they can do things that are protectionist and to keep the structure going. And um, 
how that plays out in the EPL, for example, is you have um, owners who, who in the United States who are used to a certain model trying to implement that model overseas. And this is recently uh, occurring and has been discussed. And, you know, for example, uh, this idea of no relegation, you know, having teams set and be clearly divided between major and minor league clubs. And there's no promotion, there's no relegation, right? It's you are what you are. And the minor league clubs are essentially owned or in contract with the major league clubs to provide talent. And uh, obviously, the idea of television rights, whether they're league wide versus club controlled, you know, is it the NFL model versus the ML or the MLB model? Um, obviously, larger debt ceilings to avoid bankruptcy because bankruptcy is never a good thing, uh, even though you can eventually return from it. The old story of Leicester City and uh, them going bankrupt in the I think it was the 90s and now coming back, um, you know, years later to win a championship. I think it was last year. So, and obviously extending lines of credit, right? So um, giving money uh, to these sort of second tier clubs or even sharing of money amongst clubs. I mean, this is clearly uh, what happens in the United States when you're talking about the luxury tax, salary cap, you know, especially with the luxury tax. If you go over, say a team goes over, spends too much money, that money goes back to the other teams. The tax does. So, so this redistribution of wealth, protectionism, carve-outs, it's very anti-capitalism, but it's the model for sports really in the United States. And it's just an interesting thing in how that model is now being uh, somewhat exported to the EPL, or at least the attempt to do it. There was actually a great article on this written by uh, a couple authors, um, T. Hone and S. Uh, Szymanski, uh, called the Americanization of European Football. It was written in 1999. I'd encourage you to check it out. So, I think ultimately the inevitable the inevitable is going to happen, right? Uh, sports must be consumable for the masses for the game to be most profitable. And people, obviously, as a business owner, you're going to want the business to be most profitable. Um, and so, let me look at the the Oakland Raiders moving, you know, to LA and then back to Oakland and then. Um, and then now to Las Vegas, you know, obviously it's about meeting fans. It's about having a new stadium. It's about having a friendly city government and state. Um, but it's also about where the fans are and what's best for the business. Right. And so the fans in Vegas love it. Maybe the fans in Oakland don't love it so much, but you know, it, it is a business at the end of the day and they are on the business of making money and, um, protecting their interest right or wrong. I mean, however you feel about that, but that, that, that is the sort of reality. I think the truth of all of this is that there's definitely going to be a healthy debate because I am sure that, um, you know, the folks in England uh, don't want uh, necessarily a new sort of structure in play. And that's sort of been seen in how the votes have gone over there with regard to uh, the um, upper echelon of leadership. So we'll see how it goes, but uh, that's our show for this week, folks. Appreciate you listening, and as always, I'm your host, Jeremy Evans. This has been another episode, episode 43 on season two of Believe in Sports Law via the Believe Podcast Network. Thank you, and have a great week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.